This is episode number 518 with Harvard professor Mihir Desai. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Ramsey said, you must gain control over your money or the lack of it will forever control you. Oh, my friends, we've got another professor in the house. His name is Mahir Desai, and he's a professor of finance at Harvard Business School and a professor of law at Harvard Law School. He received his PhD in political economy from Harvard University, his MBA as a Baker Scholar from Harvard Business School, and a bachelor's degree in history and economics from Brown University. One of the smartest guys around on this topic and Professor Desai's area of expertise includes tax policy, international finance, and corporate finance. His research has been cited in The Economist, Business Week, The New York Times, and several other major publications, and he has testified several times to congressional bodies, including most recently the Senate Finance Committee on Corporate Tax Reform and Inversions. And if your head is hurting already from all this language and lingo, uh, and just the idea of finance in general, then... Welcome to the show, because this has always been a challenging concept for me, understanding finance, economy, things like that. It's always been hard to understand, and I didn't really get it, and I shied away from these conversations earlier in my life, even in my early uh, 20s and in college, just because it just seemed like it was hard work to understand how money works why we use money, how to leverage money, how to make money, how to save money, how to invest money, all these things. Some of the big things we talk about are the most confusing things regarding finance and why we're confused in this space. Also, why debt is both fantastic to have and dangerous. And Professor Desai talks about both of these. Why it's almost impossible to tell if you're lucky or skilled in finance. The biggest leverage you can possess in business and life, and so much more on this topic. I think you guys are really going to love this, and make sure to take an image on your phone if you're listening to this on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes, and take a screenshot of this podcast image right now and post it up on your Instagram story or tweet it with the link lewishouse.com slash 518 to let me know you're listening so I can connect with you uh, while you're listening to it. And before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the review of the week. This is by Lauren Silveria. Over on iTunes, she gave a five-star review saying, life-changing inspiration. The School of Greatness podcast has inspired me to challenge myself daily and check in to be sure I'm making choices that fully align with my goals. From the inspirational guest to five-minute Fridays that spark the fire in me that I need to keep going, this podcast has changed my life. I have a greater vision for my purpose. Thank you, Lewis. Well, thank you, Lauren, for being the fan and the review of the week. It means the world to me, and uh, every time I go on iTunes and, and check out the reviews, it just lights me up of how we as a greatness team are making a difference and really impacting people by bringing on the best of the best in the world to share their stories, secrets, strategies to help you overcome a challenge you may be facing and get to that next step. And we definitely have that with Professor Desai from Harvard today. And before we dive in, guys, we are almost sold out with the Summit of Greatness. It is one month away and the price is increasing double the price next week. So if you want to learn from some of the most inspiring speakers in the world, connect with other passionate, innovative, inspirational human beings flying in from all over the world as well. It's going to be a thousand people at this event. It's going to be an experience like you've never had before. Uh, So many people keep asking me, what's it going to be like? It's hard to explain. The people from last year continue talking about how amazing it was And we've got some big things planned this year. So make sure to go to summitofgreatness.com. Get your ticket right now before the price goes up. And I can't wait to give you a hug uh, in September for the Summit of Greatness. 
I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12-pack, head to Amazon and use promo code 20PureLeaf. That's promo code 20PureLeaf for 20% off. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone if you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent, all in the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. They know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. All right, guys, I hope you enjoy this one and the second part of Professor Week with the Harvard professor, Mihir Desai. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. We have a Harvard professor in the house today. His name is Mihir Desai. Is that right? Exactly right. Mihir Desai. Exactly. Good to see you. Good Thank you so you. much for being here. No, my pleasure, Louis. We got connected through, I guess, Eric Barker mentioned coming on the show. Exactly. And then I checked out your stuff. I always vet it with Christine. And I'm like, see if this guy's legit and if this would be interesting. <laughs> and you pass the test for it to be the interesting Christine enough. test. Very yes. good. Excellent. Uh, you've got this book called The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Um, and you've been teaching finance, entrepreneurship, business. You you teach at the entrepreneurship program and the law school at Harvard, correct? Exactly. For yeah. Eighteen years you've been teaching there. Yeah. You've been writing journal papers for eighteen years, right? And teaching and kind of in the weeds and the thick of it with your students. Exactly right. Right. And so, why did you decide to do this book? And why is this topic so important? And, yeah. Uh, Sure about that. Yeah, so you're right. I was a totally traditional economist writing academic papers. And then basically over the last five years, I wanted new challenges. You know, So the thing about academia that's crazy is you can look at your life 20 years forward once you get tenure and you know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's great and it's terrifying. Right. And so for me, it was more terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to change. So I started an online course. I started teaching at the law school. And then I wanted to write a book. It's really, to me, it's one of the biggest challenges I've taken on. It's not mm-hmm. the way I write. You know, when you write in academia, you write totally tight. Yes. Yeah, you can Clean. only say so much. Yeah. You've got to like really be, really be tight. This is loose and it's mm-hmm. like stories. And so it was a massive challenge for me. What I really wanted to do with the book though is one, challenge myself, but then B, you know, I teach finance and finance has got some serious problems. And so I wanted to address them. And the, really the two big problems I wanted to address is one, I want to demystify finance because I think it's way too important for people not to understand. And a lot of people demonize it for like the wrong reasons. And then the second thing is chunks of finance are broken. We got to make it better, right? We lived through like this massive financial crisis. We got to make it better. And so this book is an effort to say, look, there's nobility in finance and you should feel proud of that. And you got to live up to it. Mm. You can't just kind of behave in a bad way. Yeah. I never taught these things growing up in, you know, elementary school, high school, college how come these things are never really taught until you get to college unless you take those classes yeah and then we're just kind of illiterate with finance and we're broke and don't know what to do with the rest of our lives i mean like you think about student debt or you think about credit card debt even as an example i I know doctors who come out they start a private practice they have no clue what they're doing financially it's zero clue it's and it's kind of a crime right in fact the level of financial literacy is so low and if you think about the mistakes people are making like the terrible mistakes they make with debt i mean they're they're life-changing decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have some... It could basic, haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah, they, they yeah. hang over you forever. Um, and we don't do anything. In fact, that's one of the... Th- I was joking with my daughters. I have three daughters. And uh, one of my girls was telling me, like, the next project should be the kids' book version. Mm-hmm. And it's I, true. And yeah, it, it's true. It kind of struck me as crazy, but uh, these ideas... 
you got to get them to kids yeah. because if you don't get them to kids, they'll never they'll never learn it. So is this like the advanced version of Rich Dad Poor Dad? Then is this kind of like because that's the story of like a rich dad and a poor dad and yeah. what they did and how yeah. they bought and how they whatever. Yeah, you know it's funny because that book, you know, it's kind of in a way it might be easy to ridicule, but mm-hmm. it has had an amazing impact on so many people. On so many and people, opening them up and be like, oh, if I just invest this way yeah. on something, I make more money than just. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's funny as an academic, you tend to look down on that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? You look down on yeah. it, and you're like, whatever. And the reality you're just, is... You're more pissed that he's just created such an empire around a simple concept, right? Right. And you kind of... But you kind of look down on it, frankly. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I don't want to write that book, but I want to speak to those people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're right. I'd like to think about this as a more elevated or advanced version yeah, of that. Yeah, of course. Um, and I think hopefully it could be. I think yeah. if we get this into like schools and we get these ideas out there, um, people want to know finance. They yeah. want to learn it because they know how important it is. It's really interesting. On Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that thing has been on the bestseller list for like 25 years. It's crazy. It and just keeps if, selling and selling. You look at the bestsellers in finance and investing, they're the same books for like the last 20 years. And, you know, Ben Graham, Intelligent Investor, Rich mm. Dad, Poor Dad. There's like five books, um, which makes you realize there's a ton of demand and there's not enough supply, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. so this is like a version of that, uh, yeah. which is trying to say, well, look, let's try to speak about finance in a clear way. Yeah, so what are the things that we're confused about the most with finance? In general, as you know, well, a as world. a society, yes. yeah. So I think there's a couple. You know, one is borrowing and debt. Mm-hmm. I think people either think it's terrible, um, which is wrong. It's wonderful borrowing money and yeah. having debt. Having debt. I mean, the thing what people don't realize is, and it's always been demonized through history, right? Like so, Socrates said it was you know immoral to charge interest, and religions. A lot of religions don't allow uh, payment of interest, but they don't realize that actually debt is fantastic. So if you're a poor person and you want to access opportunities, you couldn't access otherwise. There's only one way to do that, which is through borrowing. Mm -hmm. You want to live in a house you don't have any right to live in. How do you do it? Borrow. You borrow. Yeah. You want to invest in education. You don't have the resources. How do you do it? Borrow. It's like a liberating thing. So people don't understand that piece of it. And then they don't understand the dangers. Mm -hmm. They don't understand the dangers, which is once you do that, it is... A really, really serious commitment, <laughs> yeah. and you can find yourself in a world. And I tell the story of what's called debt overhang, which is this finance idea, which you have so much debt that you can't actually do the the best things for yourself because it's like looming over you, and that is the trap people fall into. Yeah. So they kind of either ignore the real virtues of it, or they kind of just say, "Well, it's great, and I'll just do it. It's not a big deal." So, so that yeah. I think is one big piece on the personal side. How do we how do we make a decision of knowing like okay? I'm stuck in this rut, and if I go to this school that costs me 50 grand a year, I don't know what Harvard is, maybe it's 80 grand a year now, um, then I'm going to get the opportunities and the insights that will help me for the rest of my life, but I'll have a half a million in debt from four years. Exactly. That's going to take me the rest of my life to pay off. Yeah. Well, so here- So how do you make that decision? Well, and the short version is, so you got to really think hard about what the upfront investment is. Mm-hmm. And then the hard part for people is you got to think about the incremental wages. Like how much more am I going to make? Not how much am right. I going to make, but how much more am I going to make because of this investment? How much better of my lifestyle going to be, right? Exactly. Because of this investment. And people don't usually do that. And there's also, you know, the truth about education, and I'm not just saying this because it's my business. I'm not just talking my own book. But the truth is, on average, it's a great investment. That doesn't mean it's always a good investment. There's a lot of crappy investments out there. There's a lot of really bad investments out there. But on average, it's great. Mm -hmm. What you got to think about is there's a labor market out there. And you got to have skills that are going to be valued. (laughs) If you don't develop the skills that aren't valued, then... You're not going to be able to make money. You're not going to be able to make money. And then you have to ask yourself, if you want to do a degree and you want to do something that is not really valued in the labor market, you know, whatever it might be, let's say you want to go to cooking school just to learn cooking. You should understand that's basically consumption. Mm. It's not an investment. Right. You're just having a good time. It's pleasure. And if you want to do that, you go do that. But don't kid yourself. And think you're going to get it paid off. Right. That's just you having fun, like you go in the Super Bowl or yeah, you know, yeah. some big yeah, thing yeah. you want to go do. Yeah, yeah. So people have, I think that's what's confusing about a lot of these things. They're both investment and consumption. Mm-hmm. It's like a house, right? It's a big investment, but you live in it and you consume it all the time, right? right? And so it's got these, there are these things that are weirdly both. There's stuff you invest in and there's stuff you like really, really enjoy. Sure. Um, not like stocks, which are an investment and not like food, which is consumption yeah right yeah, these yeah. things are actually in between and that sure. makes it really confusing i think for people got it 
what else should we uh, be aware of? What are the other big things that we do? So I think the other big thing that people struggle with in finance and uh -huh. outside of finance is they think there's a lot of skill in finance. In in what? In managing, making, in investing managing money? money and investing money. And when they get good results, they think it's their skill. So the lesson of finance is it's almost impossible to tell the difference between luck and skill other than over the long run. Right, so you got a buddy, I got a buddy, and the buddy says, you know what, I beat the stock market like three years in a row, five years in a row, I'm yeah. awesome. Yeah. And the answer is, I have no idea if you're awesome. <laughs> you right. may be awesome. The market may have just been going up. Exactly. And you just got into the right time and whatever. And in fact, like, you know, the, there's this old coin tossing trick, right, which is you get 80 people in a room, you toss a coin 10 times, and you kind of go through it, and then you say, who got nine heads? maybe one or two people who got 10 heads, you're pretty much guaranteed to get somebody in that room, get 10 heads. Mm. And then you ask that person, you know, how did you do it? <laughs> yeah. And the person of course will honest, usually answer honestly, which is it was luck. Yeah. But when you're a mutual fund manager and you beat the market right. 10 years in a row, I'm the man, I'm you, the woman, you, I'm the man, I'm <laughs> the woman. and I did it. Right. Yeah. And so I think people think there's a lot of skill uh -huh. and it's the truth is it's really almost very, very hard to beat the market persistently. There may be a few people out there who can do it well over the long run. I don't know who they are. You don't know who they are. Right. Don't believe the hype. So for example, you know, as you may know, there's this, this massive rise in indexation, mm -hmm. right? So like people basically just buying uh, exchange traded funds or index funds. Mm -hmm. And that's because people have figured out. That's, that is what has worked over the years. That's what's worked over just the years. Invest in the index fund, and thirty years, you're going to make more than if you try to play. You try to play the game yourself, yeah. or frankly, if you try to pay somebody yeah. who tells you they know how to play yeah. the game. Isn't this what Buffett does? He just invests in index. Well, so funds. Buffett is like a guy who's Buffett's super interesting, right? Because yeah. he actually people think he's beaten the market for a long period of time, and he may have, but he also doesn't believe in a lot of these things, right? He doesn't believe you can just kind of be successful, no problem. And in fact, the way he works now, it's so interesting about Buffett. He basically monetizes his halo, right? So when he invests in a company, people rush in. Mm -hmm. And so what does he do? Bought he that. kind of like, during the financial crisis, he bought preferred stock at Goldman and GE. He kind of rescued them. He got terms that no, you and I could not right. get. Of course. Right? Because he's Buffett. And then he does- Influence. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he gets, and he gets like, he got like terms I would never get in the market if I went to go buy mm -hmm. that stock. And then he turns it into performance. So, you know, it's really interesting. And I think that's one of the big problems in finance is we think that there are these super skillful people out there and they're super smart. Reality is some of them maybe, but you don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What should we be doing with our money then? So that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so it kind of depends on who you are, right? So let's think about a typical kind of person. Yes. Let's say working and they have a income stream, uh -huh. maybe they have a family. So in terms of savings, the first thing is, save. How much? You As know, much? The truth is um, very few people oversave, mm. right? So what does oversaving mean? Oversaving means I'm depriving myself today so that when I retire, I have more. Mm -hmm. Very few people make that mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 98% of people are making the mistake of not depriving themselves today so mm -hmm. they can have more later. Mm -hmm. So for almost all people, it is save more than you're doing now. Mm -hmm. That's almost universal. As much as you can. Yeah, I mean, as much as you can. And at some point, you're going to be saying to yourself, you know, uh, I'm skimping too much. I'm making myself unhappy because right, I'm right. living in a shack. And <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't need to live in a shack. Eating ramen noodles. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, you know, like you have to kind of get a little bit better and yeah. you have to move up. But first is you should be saving from the time you're earning money. It's really, really important. Mm -hmm. It's like a tiny little bit as much is great. Mm -hmm. um, second thing you got to think about is- Where should you be saving it? So the first thing is, um, and this is going to sound a little nitty gritty, but it's really true do anything that lets you save money on taxes. There's all a lot of tax-advantaged ways to save. Do it. What are the top five in your mind? So IRAs, Roth IRAs, you know, pension plans that are sponsored by companies. People mm. don't opt into them. It's crazy. Yeah. If you're a private entrepreneur, you can set up your own. So like, if you think about like uh, fees and management fees and returns, mm -hmm. if you save 30% upfront because of taxes... Like that's a victory, <laughs> you know. Like that. And who is cares a, about the fees? What yeah, you're exactly. And it's like makes, a lot of people will say like these IRAs are bogus, and you're not going to really miss, no. earn money over time. It's like all these fees and all this like. Well, it depends on marketing how marketing and well, blah blah blah. Well, once know. we get into the IRA, that's fine. But first, put it into something tax advantage. Got it. Yeah. In any tax Where thing you have, tax deferred. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. And just max out on tax stuff. The government's telling you you should yeah. 
you should do it. So that's IRAs, pensions. That's is that insurance policies as well. Even like health savings accounts, yes. flexible spending accounts. People don't use that stuff. It's I also do that. kind I of max out all the. You got to max yeah, out on that. Stuff. I do it all, and yeah. it's forced savings too. The other mm-hmm. cool thing about it is it's kind of forced savings because yeah. they take it out right. before you even get to touch it. And then the final thing is, uh, don't pay a lot of money to have people manage your money. Now this is like you know, anathema to people in finance because there's a lot of wealth advisors and brokers out mm-hmm. there. And the reality is, unless you have serious coin. Don't pay a lot in fees is what you're saying, yeah. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, so like, for example, take like half your money, put it into like a government bond fund. Take like half your money, put it into an equity index fund. Mm-hmm. And then sit back. Yeah. If you want to play and have fun, take a small chunk of your wealth and just go have fun. But right. don't do it with all your wealth and don't pretend like you're doing something serious. You're just having fun. Yeah. If it's, you lose it, you lose it. You lose it. It's just like buying tickets to the movies. Yeah. You're just going to like have fun with this money over here and you're going to invest it because this, your buddy told you right. his company's great. That's fine. But don't pretend. It's like consumption again, right? You're having fun. You're not investing. You're mm-hmm. just going and goofing off. Yeah. So I think the big rules are, you know, save more than you think you need. Second, try to think about taxes. It sounds boring, but it's so first order. Third, don't pay a lot of people money for managing your money. Uh, and then fourth, create a little fun space and, go, and then go have fun. Um, if you have a lot of money, you can take 10% of it and your buddy comes to you and says, I got a business. I want you to invest Give me in. five, 10 grand and put it in there. Whatever yeah, day. then that's fine. But don't pretend like you're going to get it back. And no, <laughs> I've invested in many startups that I've had zero. I've made zero return over the last eight years. Well, and you're not alone, right? So, what, so many people have. So what do we know about yeah. startups, right? Like, so like 80, 90% of them are going to be zeros. Yes. And then 5%, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. will be 10X, 5X. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's a bunch of junk in the middle. But yeah. basically, it's totally bimodal. And for me, I went into it thinking, I'm going to lose this all. Like, it's, it's a way for me to learn, to build relationships, to like get in with a certain industry. Well, that's interesting. And so I was like, this is my Harvard degree. You yeah. Know, this is like my... And, and investment in something that's well you know. you're learning yeah you're meeting people yeah um and you are having fun sometimes yeah, right like it's, it's just it's fun it's interesting yeah. um i think as you get older it gets harder to do that because you know when i was 30 mm-hmm. i was willing to do that stuff mm-hmm. i was willing to write now checks. You got three kids and you're now you got yeah. three kids and you're like geez i don't know if i should be doing that <laughs> yeah. but that's the other big thing which is when you're young mm-hmm. you should be taking more risk yeah. And that should taper down over life. Sure. Right? Because I'm 49 and, you know, you got to start tapering down your risk profile. Mm-hmm. So when you're young, you should be taking a little bit more risk. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is something people don't do enough of. Yeah. Do you feel like as a, as a professor, you follow your own advice? Because there's a <laughs> lot of people that teach that don't actually do what they say you should do. I do most of it right. Well, what the, I just said. I, yeah. I'll tell you what I do wrong. Well, let me just say what I you do right. You invest in startups. <laughs> well, I used to. I used to write checks uh, yeah, yeah. to friends and former students, and I do that less now because I just, you know, I'm just more measured about the way I think about things. And I think the startup scene is so crazy right now. Frankly, in addition, um, I think the thing I do wrong is I, like everybody, I tend to overestimate, you know, my abilities a little bit. So I mm-hmm. like investing. Mm-hmm. I do it a little bit. I think if you actually look, I think I've done, you know, pretty well. But I think if you actually looked at my returns. Mm-hmm. Over time. I think I'm probably way overestimating my ability. And if you thought about like if I just parked it somewhere, (laughs) I would have probably done better and I would have spent less time in my life like wasting on that. So I probably overestimate my abilities and I think everybody does. Everyone. But I do follow all the tax stuff. I do follow all the indexation stuff, Uh no paying fees. Yeah. Um, I actually worry sometimes that I save too much. Like I worry that I'm... I'm too worried about things Mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like the good Indian way, right? It's like... Well... Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 
One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is all already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. The way you're raised and how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I'm, I was born in Bombay. I mean, I, my parents, you know, when we came, we, you know, money was something you thought hard about. I mean, I remember my parents had a little notebook where I had all my little accounts and what I spent mm -hmm. when I, since I was age seven or eight. Wow. And you're right. Once you're an immigrant, you're never, you know, you never lose that. <laughs> you never lose that sense of, wait a second, you know, we don't have as much as we need. We have to fight a little harder. We got to work mm -hmm. a little harder. We got to save a little more because who knows what's going to happen. Right. Um, and I think Indians always, you know, Indians save a lot in yeah. gold and in otherwise, yeah, right? Yeah, they yeah. do a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but especially on money stuff, they, they worry about that stuff yeah. more than they probably should. Yeah. Huh. What are some of the lessons we should be knowing or understanding about finance and the wisdom behind it? Well, so in the book... Risk and return and all that stuff. Yeah, so in the book, what I try to do is take these ideas that people in finance would be in a textbook, right? And I basically try to explain them just using stories. Without graphs and charts. No graphs, no equations. Stuff that hurts my brain. And they know? hurt a lot of people's brains. Yeah. And there's no reason to do that that way, right? So, for example, um, risk management, which is about options and diversification, like some of the most complex derivatives. Mm -hmm. So, in the book, the way I try to explain it is I use Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. So, there's like a, she's a fantastic English novelist. Mm -hmm. And she basically tells the story of these young women who are facing risk in the marriage market, right? There's like these suitors who come along and some of them are drunks and some of them have a lot of money, but they're mm. mean and some are nice, but they don't have any money. <laughs> you know, and sure, it's all sure. about that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that's the whole so plot line. What do I want to, do I want to have this debt of someone mean to me for the 40 it, years? Exactly. Or do I want to like be with somebody I'm happy with, but we'll never make it, you know. There's no passion or something. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> this is exactly what Jane Austen is about, right? Uh -huh. And so these young women are really exposed. And men, by the way, she mm. points out, have it really easy. Because if men make a mistake, it's okay um, in the 19th century, sure, right? Sure, but sure. It, women, if you make a mistake in the marriage market, it's so over. You have to weigh your options. You have to weigh your options. So she actually describes options and diversification as like strategies for dealing with risk. Wow. And it's kind of nice because then options aren't some crazy derivative thing, mm -hmm. but they're actually like something in your life. Right. And in fact, actually one of the, I think the things I'm proudest about this book is I wrote a piece for the Crimson, which is the Harvard newspaper, called The Trouble with Optionality. So the reason I really like that piece is people in finance overlearn the idea of options, right? Because they think... Give me, the, give me the breakdown of options. So the idea of options is, you know, you want to have choices, right? And the more choices you have, the better. And options are contracts which basically say you don't own something, but you have the right to own something. To buy it. And people love it because that's what optionality is, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of young people I see are obsessed with optionality, right? They're like, okay, I'm going to go to school because I need more optionality in my life because then I'll have more opportunities available to me. I'm going to be in part of networks because I need more optionality. I'm going to go work at a prestigious firm because I need more optionality in my life. So the thing I, and that sounds great, right? Because then you get to do more things in the future. So what I tried to point out in the book and I do this essay is, you know what? Most of those people, they get obsessed with buying optionality and that's all they ever do. They never make a decision. They never right? go and exercise the option. They never make the big investment. Because buying options is addictive. 
Mm. You just buy more and more and more. And then you have to pull the trigger on something big and you're like, no, more optionality, more mm. optionality. That's all yeah. I want. Yeah. And so then they end up, and I've seen this with so many kids because they're, these are kids who are really smart. They got like the best safety nets in the world. Right, right. And then they keep buying more safety nets. And you're like, what the heck are you doing? Just go do something. Go do Take some a risk. And the right? truth, what's weird is people don't understand, like the more safety nets you buy, the more you value safety nets. You're like, I got to buy another one because I'm so used to doing it. And then you end up like 40 years old and you're like, I've I, got all these degrees. I've got all this stuff. I'm, and I have all these safety nets, but I've never really done the risky thing that I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And it's, it's really sad. And so that's what I see with optionality. That's an example that's kind of throughout the book, which is you take this finance idea, which sounds really weird and abstract, options and optionality. You try to explain it with Jane Austen. <laughs> um, and then you say, look, it actually applies to your life. And like, you're, you may be getting it wrong, right? So like, even if you're in finance, because people in finance talk about this all the time. They talk about marriage mm. as the death of optionality, right? right. That's what, you know, and it sounds kind of like a ridiculous thing to say, yeah, yeah. but that's the way you, people think about it. Which in is the weird. relationship world, sure. Yeah, yeah like, it's the death yeah. of optionality. Yeah, yeah. And, but people don't also realize like, that's how great things happen, right? When you close off options. Mm-hmm. And so people in finance are consumed by that. So I do that with options in the book. Um, I do that with bankruptcy. So the, I really like the bankruptcy chapter comes at the end. Um, but I tell the story of this guy, Robert Morris, who I'm sure, I imagine you've never heard of. Nobody's ever yeah. heard of. That's what's great about the story. Nobody's ever heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> so he's the richest man in the colonies. Okay. Uh, he finances the Battle of Yorktown with his personal script. Okay? George Washington asks him to be the first secretary of the treasury before he asks Alexander Hamilton. Mm. And he says no. So why does he say no? He says no because he lost some wealth during the Revolutionary War helping the you know, young republic. And Washington says, become the first secretary of the treasury. He's like, no, go ask Hamilton. I got to rebuild my wealth. He goes back, he rebuilds his wealth. He owns uh, 40% of New Jersey, like the state. Mm. He owns a quarter of the District of Columbia, which was going to become the capital. And then he goes bankrupt. And what did we do to people who went bankrupt back then? He went to jail. Wow. And he went to jail and he was sitting in a jail in Philadelphia. He went from the richest man in the colonies to owning jail. to jail. Because he that's probably how he owned the land where the jail was. <laughs> so that's actually, the reason I tell that story is that's how we used to think about failure. We used to think about failure. People fail. They're morally problematic. They need to be punished. So the reason I tell that story is George Washington visits him in the jail in Philadelphia. And actually, it's a great story because George Washington risks yellow fever. I mean, these jails were terrible. And he and other founding fathers look at Robert Moore sitting in jail. And they're like, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. This guy helped us finance the revolution. He's sitting in jail. That leads to the way we rethink bankruptcy with the 1800 Act of Bankruptcy, 1800 Bankruptcy Act, which where we basically say, no more punishing people who fail. So now what do we do with people who go bankrupt? We actually prioritize them starting again. Right? Yeah. We're like, we're going to protect you from the creditors, right? We're going to actually get you a, a clean slate. We're going to wow. yeah. get you a, a stay. We're going to actually do all the things to help you, which I think is really analogous to how you should think about failure, right? Which is, you don't want to stigmatize it. Historically, what have we done with failure? We stigmatize it. Mm-hmm. Like, I failed. I'm bad. You know, you failed. You're, something's wrong with you. The way we should think about failure is the way finance thinks about failure, which is, it happens. Let's get a clean slate. Right. Let's start again yeah. and let's protect you from all the people who have claims on you. And then let's kind of get you started. So that's another example of kind of saying, you know, bankruptcy and this idea in finance actually applies to the way you can think about your life. In that case, um, failure. The other example that I, I kind of like is leverage. Mm. So this is about, the, about that. Yeah. So that's about debt. Right. Yeah. And people in finance love leverage. They're like, because their fortunes have been built on leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, think about a lot of people, especially in real estate, a lot of areas, it's been built on leverage. They borrow money and then it allows them to own assets they have no right to own. And they leverage that asset. They right? leverage that asset. And then if things go well, their returns are outsized, right? Because leverage, that's what leverage does to your returns. And so I kind of talk about that. But then what I try to do in the book is say, you know, that's totally analogous to commitments. You know, what is debt? It's a commitment. It's like a really, really serious commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do this via the Merchant of Venice, a Shakespeare story, right? Nominally, it's about debt. This is the play where Shylock is this money lender, and he's like, I want a pound of your flesh because you didn't pay me back. People think it's about debt. It's really about commitments. 
Like it's about commitments between people. Mm -hmm. So the point of the story is that commitments are like debt. They allow you to do things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Mm. Commitments to people, to spouses, to families, to jobs, to organizations. You get to do things you can't do by yourself. For example, what do you mean? So I give a couple of examples. So I talk about these two artists. Um, one is George Orwell, who wrote 1984. And one is Jeff Koons, who's a modern artist. You may have heard of He makes these massive sculptures. Yeah. So George Orwell is a low leverage guy. He is like living in London. Everybody wants a piece of him after World War II. He's like, I'm going away. He goes to the Scottish islands, Hebrides Islands, and he spends three years alone and he writes 1984 by himself. Mm. That's low leverage. He's not committing to anybody. He's doing right. it all by himself. Right. Jeff Koons, I think, is arguably the greatest modern artist. Um, the Whitney Museum in New York had a retrospective of just him for the whole building. He creates these sculptures that are the size of this room. One's called Play-Doh. They're made of metal and glass and just incredible stuff. He has 150 people in his factory. He doesn't actually know how to use the material hmm. that he's working with. He relies on other people who use that material. It's kind of like the, the visionary. He's the visionary. And he's, he actually like literally in one interview says, I'm the idea guy. Hmm. He's gone bankrupt like three times. He's bankrupted dealers. Wow. He is living a high leverage life. Yeah. And he produces art that he wouldn't be able to produce otherwise. You mm -hmm. can't do that by yourself. No. So the point is kind of like to say commitments um, and embedding yourself in a world of networks and commitments actually allows you to do stuff that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Right. I end that chapter with a great quote from Jefferson. Actually, the picture on the cover of the book is um, Archimedes. So Archimedes has a famous quote about leverage, which is leverage comes down to a lever, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And a lever is this amazing thing in engineering when you push down on it, you get to move stuff. You got so no heavy. right to yeah, move, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. That's like leverage in finance. You get to own a house you have no right to own. Mm -hmm. So Archimedes says, you know, give me a place to stand and a lever and I'll move the world. So Jefferson says, the biggest lever in life is your reputation. So if you commit to the world. It's like Buffett. Yeah, like know? exactly. Like that exactly what Buffett does when he monetizes mm -hmm. Halo. So Jefferson says, basically, if you're good to the world, then the world, because you have a good reputation, will let you do things you have no right to do. Which is true, right? That's what reputations mm -hmm. do. And that's why it's so hard when you lose your reputation <laughs> because the reputation is the stuff that lets you say, I trust you, go ahead, you can do it. So you commit to good behavior and then you get to do things you have no right to do. Yeah. And that's the essence of commitments and that's kind of the essence of leverage wow. as well. That's powerful. Who's the smartest person you've taught come through one of your classes? Wow, so I've had, I've had the good fortune to you know, teach a lot of great people. Mm -hmm. God, you know, I have had, uh, I am so proud of a lot of my former students. So it's kind of hard for me to think about that. It's hard to choose that. one. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there may be a few that you could think of who've done well, extraordinary things or. God, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you kind of a bunch of different people because I think it's useful to kind of, mm -hmm. they're different types of people, mm -hmm. right? Um, so an entrepreneur, who, there's, you know, an entrepreneur who I think is really spectacular, um, Sarah Kaus. She built Swell. You know the mm -hmm. water bottles? Yep. As well. Yeah, yeah. Very popular right now. She's spectacular. And I you know, I, I don't think she might be telling you, you know, I had her as a first year student at HBS and she was she was really nervous about mm -hmm. finance and she was really, you know, nervous. And she has just built like a great company. Yeah. Out of something that, you know, the water bottle business you might not have even thought about, but she's made it into something aesthetically beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like that's spectacular. Yeah. Um I'll give you another type of person because that's like an entrepreneur type of person. Uh, another type of person as I've had a couple of authors. So mm. um, Lee Carpenter has written a book about Navy SEALs. Mm. Uh, Gail Lemon wrote Ashley's War, which is a spectacular story. I think they like took a totally different path. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they go to business school and then they go write novels and yeah. journalism. It's spectacular. Um, and then I had a former student who went to government. I've had a number of students who've gone to government service. So a guy who used to run the IRS, Doug Schulman. Mm. Um he was a former student. Wow. So I guess I picked those three kind of randomly. He runs the IRS. He used to. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and so I picked those three people because I think it's one of the luxuries I have is I see people who have impacts on the world in very, very different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really know who's smartest. You know, the truth is, Louis, I don't, you know, as you get older, I think smarts become less and less, which, you know, let me put it differently. I sur I'm surrounded by a lot of smart people. Yeah. And I have that luxury. Smarts don't matter unless you can execute well and unless you're a good person, unless you care about people yeah. and make an impact. It's like, and especially who cares of, how smart you are? And, it, you know, I hate to say that, but like at some level, like smarts are cheap. 
Yeah. Right. At some level, smarts are the valuable, the scarce resource. Mm-hmm. And then at some level, smarts are not the scarce resource. Yeah, especially at Harvard. Everyone's, you know, got a thousand smart people in one room. So yeah. <laughs> and so, like, is one person smarter than the other? Yeah, sure, fine. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, it is true. And it's, yeah, when yeah. you see people like that, and I, especially in the undergrad population, sometimes you see kids like that. And at the law school, sometimes you see kids like that. They're just, they, they're special. Like, they're mm. way off the tail. Yeah. Um, but the thing I you really care about is attitude. Mm-hmm. And like, I hate to be, it's like a traditional Indian immigrant thing, right? But um, like work ethic, mm-hmm. like just hard workers who are hungry and they're smart. Then you're like, damn, that's, that's the package yeah, because that is really powerful. Um, yeah, so I hate to say that, but I think smarts are, um, I don't focus on it as much. You know, yeah. I, I love smart people and I like to be around them but like small gradations in smarts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in sports too, you know, when you have just a talented player who doesn't work hard and is lazy. Exactly. You're like, get off my team or you're just like, Oh, I wish you would work hard. Cause then you'd be incredible. And you've got someone who works hard, but isn't talented. You keep them on the team. Cause it's like, they yeah. lift everyone up. Yeah. But if you can put it together, it's like, and in fact, those people who have talents and who don't work hard, they're the, they're the most tragic stories, oh, right? It's the worst. Cause you feel like, you Give me no, some of that talent. And you have no idea what you have. Oh my gosh. And in fact, just, just to go back to the book a little bit, the, one of the, there's a story in the Bible um, called the parable of the talents. Mm-hmm. It's like this great story in the Bible. It's the parable a, of the talents, right? Yeah. Is this the one with the, the father gives his son talents or something? What, how's it go? It's great. So here's the story, which is um, there's a master who's mm-hmm. supposed to be God. Okay. And he's going out of town and he's got these three servants and he says, I'm going out of town. You got to take care of my talents. So talents today are like these special things we have like that make us special. Mm-hmm. Back then it was money. Yeah. Ta- the origin of the word talents is money. So he gives one guy, he's like, look, here are five talents. Take care of this. I'm going out of town. Because another guy, three talents. He says, take care of this. I'm going out of town. He gives a third guy one talent and he says, I'm going out of town. Take care of it. He comes back. And obviously he's supposed to be God in this story. And these mm-hmm. are like normal people. So the guy with five talents comes to him and says, you know, master, I took your five talents and I invested it and uh, I lent it out and I made it into 10 talents. And he gives it back to the master. And the master says, wonderful, enter the kingdom of God. Second person says, I took your three talents and I made it into six talents. And the master says, great job. Welcome into the kingdom of God. Third guy is like, you know, I only had one talent and I was a little nervous and I wanted to make sure and have it. So I buried it. It's here and I want to give it back to you. And the master says, you're out, you know, you're damned. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. So the reason I love that story is it's mm-hmm. about, um, it's about how you're given these incredible gifts and you have to use them. It also, in the value creation chapter, it's kind of exactly what finance says about value creation, you know, which is you're a steward for resources. You got to do more than people expect you to do. Mm. In finance, that's called beating your cost of capital because otherwise you wasted you've wasted an opportunity. And if you just sit on things, that's actually value destroying. It's not value creating. Mm. So that parable, it's just like your story about this athlete, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's a really weird parable though, right? Cause this young, this one guy who had one talent, he's like the poorest guy. And he, just because of his fear, he gets damned, right? He gets mm-hmm. like literally cast out of the kingdom yeah. of God. But it's a powerful story for saying, you know, we are all given a lot and you have to make everything you can out of it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I really like that story because it has to do with finance, but it's also this really interesting story, you know, yeah. more generally. Making the most in the world and making the most of what we all have. So and it's We're like, not going to have five talents sometimes. Yeah. We're going to have one little talent, but it's like, what's, what, how can you make that into 10? Exactly. In your own way. And it's like, it's your duty. Yeah. Right? It's not like you can if you want. Like the story of the parable is, it's your duty. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you've been given something and you have to make the most of it. So I like that, right? Because mm. it's almost like it's incumbent upon us to realize what our talents are and then make the most of it. Yeah. And, you know, so there are a lot of people who have found that parable, um, you know, in a way that's almost terrifying, right? Because you're like, jeez, mm. am I making the most of my talents? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the story in the book is about these two guys, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost and Samuel Johnson. They were haunted by that parable. Really? Yeah, because they like spent their life like, oh my God. And these are two seriously talented people, right? Samuel Johnson wrote the first dictionary mm, right, like, right. in eight months. I mean, it's like, yeah, he's yeah. a crazy guy. John Milton wrote Paradise Lost when he was blind. These are crazy people. And yet they were 
they were always asking themselves, Am I doing enough? Have I been given so much? Am I doing enough? And it's kind of an interesting way to live, you know? Mm -hmm. You don't want to take it too far because you'll beat yourself up all the time. But I think more of us should probably be doing that. Yeah. Because we all are very lucky uh, in different ways. I think it's important to live in urgency too. You know, not just like, oh, I'll wait until I'm ready type of feeling. Yeah. I'll wait till I get the degree. No, yeah. start something now. Even if it's going to fail, at least you're learning something and you're yeah. trying to do something with your talents. Yeah. Right? I agree. I mean, I think people over-incubate a little bit, right? So they kind of wait for their ideas to get a little bit more clear. <laughs> but the reality is just go and just yeah. do it because, and in that version of the story, it's incumbent on you. Like you got to go do it. Mm -hmm. um, I really like that idea of not just like you've been given something, so do it, but like you got right, to go right. do it. Cause if you're not, you're wasting like this really the privilege you've been given. Mm -hmm. What's the greatest lesson you've learned over the last 18 years of teaching? Wow. You know, uh, well, let me say a couple, let me say two things, right? So one is I learned something about teaching. Um, the art of connecting with your yeah. students. And, and it's really, it's fundamentally, when I teach best, and I don't always teach great, but when I do, it's like an act of empathy. Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this. Assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake calipers. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Right. Like you got to go into the other person's, you have to think about how the other person is thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So like too many people who are teachers are, especially in an academic environment, it's like about my ideas. I'm projecting it onto you. And fundamentally, it's about empathy. Like mm -hmm. if you if you can get in other people's shoes, then you can help them understand something. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that's about teaching, just about what it is, really, because it is kind of my life's work along with yeah. research and writing. Um, I think the big lesson, though, you learn from teaching, and especially where I teach, it's it's you know humility. You don't know who who the kids are who are going to go do great things. Yeah. You know, you sometimes see them, and you kind of get a sense but everybody has something different in them and people who in a classroom don't say anything or don't do anything you come they come talk to you later and they're like spectacular mm. and then like these people who you know are always talking and always saying stuff and sound really smart they're actually kind of empty vessels mm -hmm. you know so you're you're a little don't bit judge people yeah don't know. judge people and you're a little more humble about um everybody has different capacities and i don't i judge people much less than i used to mm -hmm. because i just I don't know what your capacities are. I, yeah. you know, I don't know what your really kid in the great. back of the class who doesn't speak could be like the next best whatever. Yeah, and you know? I think that's the related part is you know encouragement is so important. Mm -hmm. I used to be a little bit more of a hard ass. I used to be <laughs> like when people would, uh, you know, when you're younger, you're a little bit tougher, right? I yeah. think. And as I got older, I kind of feel like encouragement is so important because uh -huh. you don't know who who's struggling with what, and you don't know what they're good at. Um, so you always want to err on the side of encouragement. Yeah. Cause if you err on the side of being, a, you know, like pushing too hard, that can do damage to people. Yeah. Um, 
so I think I've those I think that's the most important thing. I think humility and just this sense of mm. you know people are incredible in different ways mm-hmm. and you don't know and you shouldn't pretend to know. Yeah. Um and you just have to help them it's like raising children. You know, you have right. you have to help them be the best person they can be. So, in in like this very limited way in a classroom obviously. Right, 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 right. Not like being a parent. Yeah. Let's um let's imagine that it's your it's your final class you're ever going to teach. And the world is connected to your mic right now. And they're all going to be in your classroom listening to you. They can all understand English. And you have your final lesson to share to the largest classroom. And you'd have 60 seconds to share any lesson you want. Roughly 60 seconds. If you're going to ask questions like this, you should send them in advance. I should. (laughs) This is unfair. No, this is a great question. It's a spectacular question. But if you had one lesson that you'd had to share to the world, and this was like, all right, after this lesson, you don't get to hear any more from me. You don't get any more books from me. You don't get any more research. Here's my greatest thing I could teach. Oh, gosh. So. (laughs) No pressure. I know, exactly. So I would say two things. Um, And one is going to sound very current but the other one is going to be a little more transcendental. So I think the current thing I would say is we have got to figure out, uh, and I'm not like a big environmental guy, mm-hmm. but we got to figure this out. I mean, like we're really in a very perilous situation and you got to take that seriously. I mean, this isn't even my area, right. but I've come to believe it. And I think we don't even understand like the existential risk that we're facing. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, f- fundamentally, you know, kindness and generosity are massively underestimated. The power of those things uh, is just incredible. I'm not saying I've lived up to that, by the Mm -hmm. way, just to be clear. I don't think I have. Um, But, you know, I've become convinced that that is the most kind of important, when I see this in my children or I see it in many people, I say, that's the attribute we need more of. Mm -hmm. And everybody has this capacity for it. And yet on, we layer on top of it, you know, intellectual stuff and other stuff. But that core thing is the thing we all have to get back in touch with because mm-hmm. it's so important to the future. And it's yeah. so important to the next generation and the generation after that. Yeah. So saving the planet and kindness and generosity. Well, I think, you know, you know and I, by the way, I would do it with a story. Because I think, well, you know, the reason I wrote this this way is it's all stories. Because I don't mm-hmm. think lectures... Like if I just say to you, you got to be more X. It's hard to remember. It's hard to remember. It's and hard to uh, like you know assimilate. How do you assimilate it, right? Yeah. And I think what I learned from writing this book is stories are everything, because people remember stories, like the parable of the talents. Like you get it, right? And then it stays with you. If I say, well, value creation is about beating a cost of right. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You know, it's like right, it's right. hard to remember, right? But yeah. if I had that sixty seconds, I would think hard about the story I would tell, um, because I'm an economist and I was, you know. We only believe things in data and we get distrustful. We get become distrustful of stories. And mm-hmm. this book taught me that, you know, not all stories are true, but stories help people understand the world. Absolutely. And if you don't tell stories, people aren't going to understand you. Um, and the greatest communicators, politicians, you, you, you understand that like stories, stories anchor everybody's thinking. Mm. And without them, you're just left in a sea of stuff. You need a narrative to organize your life without a narrative. It's like chaos. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. One of my, uh, your friends and early kind of business mentors would always say facts, tell stories, sell. So if you want yeah. to sell any idea, yeah. product, business, whatever, yeah. tell a story. Yeah. Yes. And I think facts are important to understand as part of the story. To, yes, absolutely. But and you don't want to tell stories that violate facts. Right. That's really important because that's living in truth. Yeah. Um, but it's also not just sell. I think, like, I'm sure you've done this too, right? Like, at difficult times in your life, you have to tell a story to yourself about your life, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's got to be a narrative in your head yeah. about who you are and how things are going to play out. So you know, one of my narratives, everybody's got different narratives, right? So one of my narratives is, it's not the most important one, but one of them is I tend to um, fall behind and then come back. Like, so that's like one of my narratives, right? Like, I tend to, kind of uh, do something that's almost like self-defeating mm. because I want to come back right. and claim victory. Yeah. That's something that I just do. And it's a narrative in my head, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we all have those narratives, mm-hmm. like the immigrant narrative that you talked about earlier, right? 
you're like an outsider a little bit. You know, you don't know if you're going to get mo. You know, <laughs> you know, you gotta yeah, like, yeah. you gotta work harder and you gotta save more and you gotta do all these things more. These are all narratives that are like so important mm -hmm. to the way you organize your life. I like it. This is awesome. The wisdom of finance, discovering humanity in the world of risk and return. Uh, make sure you guys go pick this up. Do you guys do you have a website for this as well? Um, so my personal website is meherdayside.org. Meherdayside.org. Exactly. And it's got uh, links to the book as well. Cool. We'll have it all linked up in the show notes. Um, before I ask the final question, I want to acknowledge you, Meher, for uh, doing a book that I think is going to help people through stories. Because for me, it's impossible for me to read something that yeah. has numbers and graphs and charts. Exactly. It's like it's I shut the book right away. Yeah. It's ex exhausting for a brain like mine. Well, and you're not alone. Right. I right. mean, I think it's really, really hard for people. Yeah. So oh, I, thank you. That's I very acknowledge kind. you for, for stepping out of your comfort zone to create something, to use your talent and multiply it for the world well to, to receive it. Because, um, you know, if you didn't do this, only your you know, the, the students would have got the information right. and not the world. So yeah. I think this is well, a, that's a very valuable kind. thing. To, I appreciate it. With that story. Yeah. Are you on social media as well? I just got on. All right. So I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. No, I'm not going to pretend. Twitter. You're on there like, what, once a week? I, you know, <laughs> the truth is I am on it, but I don't know what I'm doing. Sure, sure. So all I'm doing is promoting the book. Got it. Like I'm not actually learning how to use Twitter. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so I should probably figure it out from you. But I think, you know, I got to get better at kind of creating a personality. Yeah, yeah. Um, right now I'm just kind of pimping the book. And got it, got that's it. That's all I'm doing. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, we'll have everything linked up. Um, but the final question is, what's your definition of greatness? Wow. My definition of greatness? Uh, you know, it goes back to what, what we talked about earlier, um, which is it is making the most of what you've been given. And so greatness resides in everybody. Mm -hmm. I think the thing we make the mistake of is, you know, that guy over there, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was great or whoever. And the reality is I think we can all be great. It's mm. just about uh, looking inside and making the more than you could have made out of what you've been given. I think that's greatness. Awesome. And when we see it in somebody like Muhammad Ali or Mahatma Gandhi, it's like particularly spectacular. Yeah. But it's in everybody. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Appreciate this was great. It. Yeah. Thank you. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. LewisHouse.com slash 518. Take a screenshot of the podcast app that you're listening on right now and tag me at Lewis Howes on Instagram. I try to reply to almost every one that I can. Um, and I want to feature you. So if you take a screenshot and you post a thought about how this inspired you today on your Instagram story, I screenshot a lot of them and repost them as well on my Instagram story. So tag me at Lewis Howes, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, post a photo of where you're listening to this and let me know what you think. And also, I hope to see you in person. The Summit of Greatness is coming. Early bird price goes away in one week. It's almost doubling in price in a week. And we are almost sold out. So make sure to go to summitofgreatness.com. Get your ticket. It's going to be a mind-blowing experience. And I promise you, you're going to have an incredible time. Can't wait to see you there. And I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Because as Dave Ramsey said, you must gain control over your money or the lack of it will forever control you. I love you guys, and you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about.
Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've learned the hard way that constantly holding on to your emotions and repeatedly choosing to not talk about your feelings will only make you feel worse and worse. And up until about 10 or 11 years ago, I was afraid to talk about my trauma that I experienced. And I know we all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lewis today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash L-E-W-I-S.